Got an old car? You can donate it, whether it's running or not, to the United Breast Cancer Foundation and save a life. They'll even come and pick it up for free. The United Breast Cancer Foundation has saved hundreds of women's lives through their free or low-cost breast screen exams. But now they need your help. The United Breast Cancer Foundation wants to save more lives through early detection by offering women free or low-cost breast screening exams. And donating your old car, SUV, or truck, whether it's running or not, helps pay for them. Plus, you get a charitable tax deduction. Help the United Breast Cancer Foundation save lives by donating your old car, SUV, or truck. Call now for free pickup. 800-280-2144-800-280-2144-800-280-2144. Call right now. That number again is 800-280-2144. Following is a live copyrighted presentation. Ladies and gentlemen, it's time now for Radiolawtalk.com with your host, Frederick Penny, attorney at law. And now, Radiolawtalk.com. Well, it's still good morning here from our palatial studios coming at you on the airwaves online, Radio Law Talk, and online at radiolawtalk.com. My name is Todd Cunin. I am filling in for Fred Penny today. He is on assignment to my right, Denise Dirks. Denise, it's hour number three. We're starting. How are we doing? Good. Good? Good. Yeah, we're doing really good. We're just um, kind of sliding right into hour three, actually. We are. We are. I don't know why it is, but when we start out, I always feel like I'm... On an airplane, like I'm one of those people giving the announcements or something. We've just started. The pilot has turned off the fasten seatbelt sign. We've started hour number three here on Radio Law Talk. Feel free to get up and move about the cabin. Feel we're free. starting our descent. We are starting, into- we are starting our descent into madness. This is yeah. where the wheels start to come off, folks. So if you'd like to call and participate in the show, 855-529-7234. That's 855-LAW-RADIO. Although by the time you get to the O in radio, you've already dialed the number. I forgot to mention also, Cal, you're behind the glass with us. How are you? Hi. Look, I'm getting one-word answers here today. Denise, how are you doing? Good. Good. Cal, how are you doing? Hi. I just thought I'd add lib a little to help out. (laughs) I I feel feel like I'm talking to my 15-year-old son. How was school today? Good. Yeah. (laughs) Okay. Uh, You know, it's time. Did you attend via Zoom? No, no. no. <laughs> you know, kid, kids in their video games, they get so locked in. Hey, buddy, it's uh, it, it's time to go to sleep. I, yeah. sl- I slept three days ago. Yeah, right. do, do you want some food? I, I ate last week. I think one of the best answers I've ever heard to that was was I think it was on the Tonight Show where Carson asked a question. The guy goes, "Yeah," and Johnny Carson goes, "Oh, you ad lib a lot, don't you?" <laughs> <laughs> I I think that might have been Charles Grodin. Oh yeah, there's somebody. Yeah. Oh Gro- yes. Well, Grodin had this shtick that he and Carson did, yes. and then and then he it bled over into Letterman, where Grodin would come on and try to be like the worst guest possible. But it was it was a it, it was, was a, a bit. It was, it was a, a bit, bit that yeah. they had, but he never broke character. It was the funniest stuff that I had seen on the Tonight Show, right up there with Karnak for me. But uh, so we got stuff to cover uh, this 
hour. We're going to talk a little about the Supreme Court. One other case dealing with uh, bifurcation. We're talking about bifurcation at the end of the last hour. We've got one other case involving Robert De Niro. And that's a, a recent one that Denise is going to let us know what's going on with that. Like I said, Supreme Court case, uh, Fourth Amendment cases we can talk about. But before before we do that, we have one more case or no case. We do. You ready for it? I, I am. I am ready. Okay. This one will be just a regular two-pointer. Here we go. Case or no case starting now. Now it's time to play Case or No Case. Yeah. So you've all heard the advertising slogan, Red Bull gives you wings. One Red Bull customer sued them for false advertising because he said Red Bull drinks did not give hum, him enough energy. Now, nobody thought Red Bull would really give you wings, but this man was upset. and He decided that gives you wings things just wasn't literal enough. He wanted more, more pow. So he called a lawyer to see if Red Bull should give him more energy. So, Todd, I think it's your turn to answer. It is. Can it is. a person or would a person, did a person sue the drink maker because it didn't make him have the jitters? It did not give him wings. He was not able to, as uh, was it Steve Miller Band says, fly like, like an, eagle. an eagle. Or a beagle. Or a beagle. <laughs> you know, um, or like Sammy Hagar says, where eagles fly. Yes. I, I, I got a million of them. Okay. But, okay, yeah. so here's what I'm going to say. I'm going to say that I believe that this is a case. And um, yeah, it wouldn't surprise me if this ended up being a class action because it's an advertising thing. Probably a lot of people purchased based upon the uh, claiming false advertising that I was supposed to get this pep in my step or whatever because of that. So I'm going to say it is a case, and I'm going to say that it results in some settlement of some type. It does not get adjudicated in Red Bull's favor completely, there is some settlement that is reached where the plaintiff receives something. Okay. okay. Denise, what say you? Does Red Bull give you wings, or should it? Um, I don't think it should. So I think it's just a slogan. It's not a promise. Um, and I think that – now, there was a rumor, and I'm not sure if this was ever true, so I'm not saying this is true – it's, but there was a rumor that Red Bull used to contain amphetamine uh, back, you know, in the day before it was illegal. That'll give you wings. Yes, and that'll give you energy. <laughs> so, or make you think you have them. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to say it's not a case. Okay, fair enough. So, Todd, you say yes. Denise, you say nay. Yes, yes. I said yes, it's a case, and some settlement was reached. Okay, well, here's what I did. I looked this up on Snopes to see, was this really a case or not? And I'm going to say I got clapping. Let me get the other one. Okay, they're all queued up. Everything's fine. So, Denise, you said it was not a case, and Todd, you said it was a case. So, Todd, this is for you. This is for me. Oh, dang And, Denise, it. this is for you. Ah, so okay. what was the case? Well, I'll tell you, most people do expect the drink to energize them, according to Snopes. Eventually, the Red Bull Corporation offered the individual a settlement. Reportedly, though, they maintained they didn't really think they were on the wrong side of this, but they awarded $13 million to their customers, which would give anybody wings, I would think. Of course, they all ended up getting a $10 cash deal or a certificate for Red Bull products worth 15 bucks. And the lawyer sat there going, that's right, my people. That's right. Keep Because <laughs> he got paid, of course, for all of that. And Red Bull agreed to avoid unpredictability and the high cost of litigation. 
and they millions of customers got that cost thirteen million bucks it cost them to to do this so that's that's just what happened it was a case and the litigants won and that is <laughs> case or no case final one for the show today final one for the show so you got two points because it wasn't an extra point case right, it's a two-pointer yeah and you know what that means? It was so easy. What, he has 50 points now? No, it means that Todd pulled out ahead of me. Todd Kunin is in the lead going into the back stretch. <laughs> it's really disappointing for me. <laughs> Phrasing. Okay, so, um, <laughs> oh, my gosh. Uh, you know, when, easy, easy, when easy. your brain works in a certain way, <laughs> or maybe not works. In I'm just, I'm just not. Uh, well, hey, you know we have we have law cases here. So Denise, we were talking about bifurcated trials, and and the other, and it, this is just a segue into this next case. Robert De Niro is in the legal news. What's going on with Mr. De Niro? Well, he's been going through a divorce for over three years, and um, it's in Manhattan, in New York. And I guess because of COVID, it hasn't been completed. But he has been paying his um, soon-to-be ex-wife um, between three hundred and seventy-five thousand dollars, and recently it has gone down to just a hundred thousand dollars per a per, month. Uh, uh, per month. Per month. How does she Whoa. get by? Well, it's a struggle time. Yes. yes. Well, you know. And um, she's, you know, he's seventy-seven years old, and he has a seven-year-old daughter with her. And so he had a boy. You sit there and you think about this. Can you make a 77 year old man continue to work at the level that he's worked during this marriage? And that's going to be one of the questions that's going to come up. And there's not an answer to that yet, but there will be. Then what was interesting about this um, case is that they had a prenuptial agreement. And at some point, this prenuptial agreement is going to, quote unquote, kick in. But first, they have to de determine the validity of the prenuptial agreement. And so that's the bifurcated issue. Is it a valid prenuptial agreement or is it not? And if it's valid, what are the terms? And if it's not, it's going to be a free-for-all. <laughs> you know, I think the other issue is if a 77-year-old man is alone in the woods and has an opinion and no one's there to hear it, is he still wrong? We're going to answer those questions when we come back for the uh, second section of our third hour on Radio Law Talk. You want to chime in? 855-529-7234. As a Facebook post said, I, I said something with my wife and she said, you're right. Now what do I do? <laughs> <laughs> we'll be right back. Commercials and other announcements aired on Radio Law Talk contain the opinions of the sponsor. The airing of said announcements on Radio Law Talk does not constitute an endorsement. The announcements may contain claims that are not intended to treat, diagnose, or cure any disease. These claims have not been evaluated by the FDA. I've got to get my car washed. This dirt, it just won't do. The best thing about Quick Cut Car Wash is whenever you go through, the smell on your car is always great, and they have super fun lights and colors. But I don't have no time today. I don't know what I do. Your car smells good and it's clean at Quick Cut Car Wash. And I know this place right down the road. Quick, 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 car, car, car wash. Quick, quick, car wash. 
get the quick quack confidence. Hop inside, let's take a ride and watch these cats shine. Get the quick quack habit. Take a car once a week. Just come and see, I guarantee your ride will steal the show. I like quick quack because of the mascot, Quackles. Come on, quick quack car. So we sell unlimited membership for per vehicle. You can add a family plan and add an additional vehicle at a discounted rate. Don't drive that dirty car. Quick, quick car wash. They'll have you looking sharp. Wayne Elliott here to tell you about my experience with Strauss Naturals Heart Drops over the past 20 years. Strauss Heart Drops saved me back then and changed my life forever. It's hard to describe how invigorating it is when you support your healthy blood flow everywhere. There is scientific evidence that Heart Drops ingredients help maintain healthy lipid concentration. Cholesterol is in the blood lipid group. This supports blood flow, our body's most important function. I was able to maintain a healthy heart and blood flow. Strauss Heart Drops work, I can assure you. No contraindications with pharma drugs. Strauss Heart Drops are safe and Strauss guarantees your satisfaction with a hassle-free guarantee so you can't go wrong and certainly have nothing to lose. I've seen folks taking Heart Drops that have greatly improved their lives. Available online at StraussNaturals.com. Thank you very much. These products may not be right for you. Always read and follow the label. Know someone with a drinking or drug problem? Learn how to get sober after we share these stories. I was 35 with two beautiful children when my life and addiction started to spiral out of control. After my divorce, I went into a depression cycle and started drinking more often and using prescription drugs. After my second DWI and arrest, my ex-husband threatened to take our children away from me. I was 17 when I became addicted to heroin and meth. I thought I could quit on my own, but I couldn't. It hit me when I was arrested. Get sober now. Your private insurance may cover costs and we'll get you here. It's simple. Just call Elite Rehab Placement right now. Please don't wait. Your life matters to us. 800-918-1376 That's it. You love your dog. Is something bothering him or her and you can't figure out what it is? Maybe they seem slow or lethargic. And maybe they just don't have energy. Wouldn't you like your dog to be living their very best life? PetJoy offers a money-back guarantee on all of its products. If your dog won't eat it or you don't see the results you want, just let us know and we'll make it right. Totally risk-free. What do you have to lose? You can't buy PetJoy multivitamins in a store. The only way you can get them is through this unique radio offer. And if you call right now, learn how to get two bottles free with your order. Turn your dog's life around and make him or her a happy camper. Ain't that right, boy? He said call PetJoy right now. 800-711-9218. 800-711-9218. That's 800-711-9218. Boys are weird. That's true. Not rarely. Now it's time for more Radio Law Talk. So, you know, Denise, do you remember, or Cal, either of the two of you, or anybody listening, if you want to call in, do you remember, it was shortly after President Trump took office in 2017. 
And, you know, he was a prolific user of Twitter up until earlier this year. Um, but in early on in his presidency, there were some people that were very critical of him and his policies. And, and they would tweet in response to tweets he had put out. And so President Trump blocked them on Twitter. And do you recall the brouhaha that came up as a result of that, uh, of the sitting president blocking people on Twitter? Sure, because people were saying that's a public account. It belongs to the people. You're the president of all the people, not just the ones you happen to choose. So that's what we're going to do. I mean, that was the response, I believe, was it not? Yeah, it, it, pretty much. There was a group called Knights First Amendment Institute and uh, seven other individuals brought a lawsuit. And essentially, they're claiming First Amendment. Look, look, if you block us from Twitter, you're blocking our ability to speak in a public forum to you, our elected representative. And um, so they filed that lawsuit. They achieved an injunction keeping President Trump from blocking them on Twitter in the trial court. And then it got appealed to the uh, Second Circuit Court of Appeals. The Second Circuit Court of Appeals upheld the ruling. And then it was appealed by the Trump administration up to the U.S. Supreme Court. And mind you, this all happened in 2017. And the case up until about a week ago was still sitting before the U.S. Supreme Court, still sitting four years later, still before the Supreme Court, where the Supreme Court had yet to make a determination about whether or not they were going to put it on their docket and hear oral argument or remand it back with no action, you know, whether it's going to grant certiorari, whether they're going to hear it, are they not? Or just not hear it and let the ruling stand. Exactly. They, they could do that. And uh, they finally addressed it, I believe this past week, maybe a week before. No, this past week. And this is what they did. Now, mind you, that at this point, even lawyers for the Trump administration had sent notice to the court that they believed that. And mind you, this is the Trump administration's appeal of the lower court ruling. They filed with the court requesting that the court dismiss the case because the issue is now moot. Or as Joey Tribbiani and friends would say, the issue is now moo. It's a moo point. <laughs> because, because it comes from cow. There's actually an episode of that. Yeah, it's a moot issue because here's the thing. It doesn't matter now what Trump's Twitter account is. First, he doesn't have a Twitter account. It's suspended. I don't know if it's indefinitely or not. But second, even if he did, he's no longer the president. He can block anybody he wants. And thirdly, what are they going to do about it? And, yeah. And so, um, so th there's no well, issue before them. And so the Supreme Court sent it back to the Second Circuit with an order to dismiss the case. So the Supreme Court's not going to hear it. The Second Circuit's ruling doesn't apply. All they have is the ruling from the trial court, but it doesn't apply anymore. But Well, what, it's not precedent. It's, it doesn't set precedent. It's not something that, that a future person could come in. Like, let's say, hypothetically, Joe Biden uh, decided he was going to block somebody on Twitter, and then somebody could say, well, in the landmark case of Knight, uh, Knight First Amendment Institute versus Trump, the – no, you, you, there's no precedential value set there. But I think there was there was an interesting thing in the language um, stated by Justice Thomas, who um, now, mind you, he, he agreed this case should be dismissed. But he had something interesting to say. He says, look, he stressed that this case highlights the principal legal difficulty that surrounds digital platforms, namely that applying old doctrines to new digital platforms is rarely straightforward. He went on to say, 
we will soon have no choice but to address how our legal doctrines apply to highly concentrated, privately owned information infrastructure, such as dis, uh, digital platforms, but agreed that this is not the case to decide it on. Is that something that the Congress should have to, to make a law to specify, or is that something the court would just interpret off of existing law? Well, look, if Congress doesn't act to do something, then yes, the court is going to have to come in, and this is what would happen. The court would come in, and they'd try to say, okay, based upon the doctrines of law up to this point, we believe that however they rule, this is the interpretation of the law as it relates to this. At which point, Congress has their choice. They can either agree with what the Supreme Court has said, or they can go in, which happens on occasion, and say, we're going to pass a law, and usually in the bill it says, this is to specifically address the holding in whatever case it was, because this is what we want the law to be. The court doesn't make the law, they just interpret it. And if Congress isn't going to clear it up for them, then they're stuck with it, right? Right. And so, so that's that's kind of how this uh, this went forward. But um, I thought it was interesting, though, because this case has been pending. And Denise, do you know how cases are selected? Everybody files. We have all these cases filed before the Supreme Court. Do you, do you know the process by which the Supreme Court goes about selecting which cases they're going to? They actually meet and confer, and they discuss the cases and the what are the legal issues and and what. Um, what precedent should be set on are these facts the right type of facts to base a decision that we want as an outcome because a lot of times they're not going to take something up that's so factually different than everything else that it's really not going to have pre, you know precedent so they're kind of value. saying is it worth the legal time of the highest court in the land is yes, that kind of what i'm hearing that you is say? Okay. Yeah, or, and in or, this particular case i mean one could argue that they purposely set on it Mm-hmm. So that it would become moot because this is the type of case that becomes moot when it involves an official who is no longer going to be in, in that position. And it's a political matter ultimately. It could. Yeah. It could. Well, it doesn't necessarily be – it's a First Amendment right matter. Honestly, there is a very important topic or legal issue that's involved there. But the question is, it's should we waste our time on something that uh, it, the facts no longer play it's out? It's not happening anymore, yeah. right? Yeah. Exactly. Big consideration by the court, which cases they're going to take up. The other is, depending on the facts of a case, boy, if we decide this one this way, that might be great for this case, but that's going to set a really bad legal precedent for other cases. And, you know, it's kind of like, I could throw the pebble in this side of the pond, but I don't want the waves on the other side of the pond. It'd be better not to throw the pebble. And I think that is how they view a lot of those cases. We're done with uh, the first half hour of the third hour at the bottom of the hour. Don't go away. You're listening to Radio Law Talk online at radiolawtalk.com or on your favorite radio station. We'll be back. Thanks, Todd. Remember, everyone, that Radio Law Talk is live 9 to noon Pacific time every Saturday morning. So you can catch us live on our website then. And we post every episode of every show at radiolawtalk.com. And and what do you call that now? The podcast? That's right. We'll be right back. Hold on. All advertising for legal services on Radio Law Talk is strictly for the state or states in which the advertiser is licensed. For more information, go to radiolawtalk.com. 
Jason Ross back here with Fred Penny, managing attorney from Penny and Associates Injury Lawyers. Now, Fred, what type of cases are you dealing with now, and what sets you apart? Jason, we help people with all types of personal injury cases. We're former insurance company trial lawyers. We understand the other side, which gives us a distinct advantage over our competition. Remember, we don't get paid unless we win. That's Penny and Associates Injury Lawyers with locations throughout California. For a free consultation, go to pennylawyers.com or give them a call 1-800-616-4LAW. That's P-E-N-N-E-Y lawyers.com. At TicketChocolate.com, we believe that simplicity is best. We also know that chocolate is one of life's finest things that can help you savor your greatest moments. Late night visits with old friends, overdue romantic moments, and quiet mornings all to yourself. See their wide variety, like hot chocolate sticks or creamy marshmallows, and a lot more at TicketChocolate.com. They remind busy people like you to take time for the pleasure small things can give. TicketChocolate.com, where simplicity is best. This is Denise Dirks. We can represent clients in divorce, legal separation, child and spousal support, custody, termination of parental rights, step-parent adoptions, guardianships, and even conservatorship matters. Call 1-877-886-7186 for a consultation. The law offices of Denise L. Dirks provide family law services in Northern California. When the law affects your family, call 877-886-7186. The family of attorneys at Denise L. Dirks is here to help. My name is Frederick Penny of Penny & Associates Injury Lawyers. I've assembled an excellent team of highly experienced personal injury trial lawyers. We understand the other side, which gives us a distinct advantage over our competition. At Penny & Associates, we will aggressively represent you and your family when someone has been injured in an accident. Remember, we don't get paid unless we win. For a free initial consultation, go to PennyLawyers.com or call 1-800-616-4LAW and ask for Frederick, Stewart, Rob, Kevin, Kent, or Will. That's Frederick Penny at Penny & Associates Injury Lawyers, 1-800-616-4LAW. For law. Why? Radio Law Talk. I like that show. Time to get back to Radio Law Talk on RadioLawTalk.com and on your favorite radio station. So when we wrapped up the last segment, going to the bottom of the hour break, we're talking about the U.S. Supreme Court and you know how they need to be circumspect when they go in and take a case, the type of cases that they take, because it could have long-term effects depending on how that case is interpreted and how, what type of precedent that sets. And here's an example. Um, brief, uh, a brief description of the Fourth Amendment to the Constitution, people – Essentially, law enforcement can only go into your house or a place where you have a reasonable expectation of privacy if they have a warrant. They have to get a warrant that's, that establishes probable cause to go in and, and go into your house or seize items, and nobody will be subject to search and seizure without a warrant. And previously, uh, I think it was back in 1977, um, uh, 1973, when the Supreme Court at the time carved out an exception to the warrant requirement, if the police were engaged in what's called a community caretaking function. So if they're if they're acting for the benefit or the welfare of the community, if they're doing something like that, um, then that is an exception to the warrant requirement. Well, OK, so that was a decision that came out in the in the 70s. And the question now is. Well, what does that really allow law enforcement to do? Because if gone unchecked, all a law enforcement officer would have to have to do to get into your house is, well, I'm performing a community caretaking function. I'm coming in. And and, and 
the slippery slope with that would be the complete obliteration of all Fourth Amendment um, rights because I don't need a warrant. It's community caretaking. That's what law enforcement would say. Well, so there was a case that comes out out of, um, oh, where was this at? It's the Cranston case. And I, I'm, I'm having a, a brain freeze now about where it originated. But essentially, it's before the Supreme Court now. And Mr. Cranston is arguing that uh, what happened was his wife had called law enforcement. Law enforcement came out and she was concerned about Mr. Cranston's mental state. And he had some guns. But at this point, he hadn't done anything wrong. He hadn't violated the law at all. Nothing had happened. She was just concerned about his mental state. And so there was this quasi bargain struck with law enforcement, which was because the cops said, well, tell you what, you need to go down and be evaluated for your mental acuity and your any mental health problems. And he said, look, I will go down and get myself evaluated so long as you don't go into my house and take my guns. They said, OK, he goes to the mental health facility. And then the cops went in the house with the uh, with the wife, took him in. She showed him where the guns were, and the officers confiscated the guns. And this started at the trial level. You, you, you took the guns you shouldn't have, um, and then it made its way up. And now the Supreme Court has to decide whether or not the officers were justified in seizing the firearms based on a community caretaking exception. Right, and I think they would have to find um, that there was either consent. So one of the issues is going to be, could the wife give the consent necessary without a warrant? Mm -hmm. Um, Or was there exigent circumstances such that um, the police had to act very quickly to help the community to make sure and protect the community and all of that such that there was not enough time to get the warrant? And, you know, the arguments um, are, you know, both for and against that issue. And I think, my own opinion is, I think that the consent of the wife is not going to be enough. It was not her, um, they were not her guns. Yeah, it's, it's, I think it's a twofold analysis. First, um, how do the officers get into the home without the warrant? That's one is how do they get into the home without a warrant? And the second thing is how do they seize this guy's personal property without a warrant? I think that the consent of the wife, any occupant of the home can grant consent to law enforcement to enter. enter. So I think them going into the home is not a problem. The, The problem that they've got is the seizure of the guns. They can't argue that they seize them with the consent of the firearm owner because he specifically said, I'll go, but don't take my guns. And because she doesn't own the guns, she can't grant consent to that. Right. The only way the officers could seize the guns is if they believed that their community caretaking function coupled with the exigency of the circumstance. We leave them here. Something terrible, something bad's going to happen. I don't know that I don't know that they can make that. That leap. I don't think so either. I don't think the facts support it because, one, he may have been um, suicidal, you know, or they thought he was going to be harmful to himself. But there doesn't clear there's not a clear understanding in here that he is going to be harmful to other people such that he would take the guns and hurt somebody. And it just is a big leap, in my opinion. And the the thing is, is this case, I mean, this case was hotly debated uh, on the floor of the Supreme Court by the judges. And you know, one thing I think that we're seeing here, we, we've seen it since the uh, appointment of the most recent judge, for all of the people, uh, Justice Barrett, for all of the people that say, oh, my gosh, this person was appointed by a conservative, so they're going to rule conservative on all their issues. This person was appointed by a liberal president. They're going to be liberal on all of their issues. You know, you can't make that prediction because we have seen it all over the map in terms of how justices rule, and it's it's not – 
often that they appeared to be, well, I'm just I'm just going to side with the political leanings of the president that appointed me. No, it just it just doesn't happen that way. Uh, but a lot of issues were raised. Here. This was argued before the Supreme Court. And I'll be curious to see how the court rules when the decision is finally issued. As a criminal defense attorney, I'm keenly interested in this because this is going to affect how evidence was procured against any of my potential clients. It also um, goes to the liability of the police officers involved, too, um, because this is what Chief Justice Roberts said. He proposed a scenario in which the neighbors called the police after growing concern about an elderly dinner guest who was usually punctual but failed to arrive. If officers found that person's back door open and went in to conduct a wellness check, would they be protected from liability for not obtaining a warrant at first? I mean, that's one of the, the questions that's also involved in this case. I think this is an extremely important case, and it's going to have um, – I, I, I'm like you. I'm, I'm just as concerned about it that it's going to go too far, but at the same time, we have a very conservative court, so I'm not sure it's going to go too far. Isn't that a silly question because the guy who doesn't show up is not suspected of a crime? He's not suspected of a crime. No, but they may think something happened to him because his back door's open. He didn't come punctual. He's always punctual. He's older. I mean, all these yeah, different so it's, factors. It's, it's a wellness check, right? Okay, but this yeah. this is the scenario that we're looking at here because there's one fact that you could add in that that would make this. So okay. elderly person doesn't show up for dinner. He always shows up for dinner. He's always very punctual. The officers go over to the house. Okay. They find the back door open. They go in without, an, a warrant, without a warrant to do a welfare check, and they find the elderly individual cooking meth in his kitchen. So then oh. the question is, wait a second. Now it's a new how did corn. you yeah. How did you get into... How did you get into the kitchen? Because you don't have a warrant to come in. And no consent. And there's right. no consent. That I get. That's where, yeah. that's where it really yeah. comes but on a, up. On a wellness check, I don't get right. it. But that, of course, I get. Right. right. And okay. so, so that's, that's where this case is really going to be one that's looked at and scrutinized. But, again, the Supreme Court had to take this one up because the last decision that they had that was really big on – community caretaking function was seven was 1970s in the 73 74 somewhere along in there and so when you look at that and you see okay this doctrine's like 40 years old we've had a lot of opportunity to see how this doctrine has played out and and maybe it's time to um put some limitations on law enforcement's use of that exactly doctrine. so we'll see really what, we'll good see what boundaries happens. need to be set in place because it's time it's been there a long time and it's a very timely issue, I think, for the Supreme Court to decide. Sure. Yeah, and it, we'll stick with Fourth Amendment really quickly here. Out of uh, Beverly Hills, down in Beverly Hills, there was a, uh, a place called Safe Boxes, which is essentially a private company that offers you the security of a safety deposit box. It's all anonymous. You come in, you can store whatever you want in there, and um, and your belongings will hopefully be safe. Well, the government has looked at that and said, wait a second. We suspect that this is being used as a way to traffic money or drugs or things like that. Nobody, nobody knows who goes in or who comes out. And so the law enforcement secured a warrant and went in and seized the boxes. Now, all of the boxes are anonymous, but here's the hitch and the giddy up. If I had a box that was in there, it is now seized. And the only way that I can get that back is to identify myself as the owner of that box, and I completely lose the protection of the anonymity that I had. And so the question here is, again, did law enforcement go too far 
in being able to come in and hit the safety deposit box uh, company. And I will say really first question and second, whether or not they could also determine who the safety deposit box owners were. That's true. So there's two elements to that. And on the first part, I will say wrong. They they got a warrant. They got a warrant to go in and get the safety deposit boxes. That lines right up with the Fourth Amendment. But the second part, that's a little difficult. We'll talk about that when we come back. We're headed to our last segment. Thank you for joining us here on Radio Law Talk. We'll be back. When does the evidentiary tree become poisoned? More on that coming up here in just a little bit on Radio Law Talk. Don't go away. All advertising for legal services on Radio Law Talk is strictly for the state or states in which the advertiser is licensed. For more information, go to radiolawtalk.com. Jason Ross back here with Fred Penny, managing attorney from Penny & Associates Injury Lawyers. Now, Fred, what type of cases are you dealing with now, and what sets you apart? Jason, we help people with all types of personal injury cases. We're former insurance company trial lawyers. We understand the other side, which gives us a distinct advantage over our competition. Remember, we don't get paid unless we win. That's Penny & Associates Injury Lawyers with locations throughout California. For a free consultation, go to pennylawyers.com or give them a call 1-800-616-4LAW. That's P-E-N-N-E-Y lawyers.com. Know someone with a drinking or drug problem? Learn how to get sober after we share these stories. I was 35 with two beautiful children when my life and addiction started to spiral out of control. After my divorce, I went into a depression cycle and started drinking more often and using prescription drugs. After my second DWI and arrest, my ex-husband threatened to take our children away from me. I was 17 when I became addicted to heroin and meth. I thought I could quit on my own, but I couldn't. It hit me when I was arrested. Get sober now. Your private insurance may cover costs and we'll get you here. It's simple. Just call Elite Rehab Placement right now. Please, don't wait. Your life matters to us. The old way of living with diabetes is a pain. You've got to remember to do your testing, and you always need to be sticking your fingers. The new way to live your life with diabetes is with a continuous glucose monitor. You simply apply a discreet, easy-to-use sensor on your body, and it continuously monitors your glucose levels, helping you spend more time in range and freeing you from painful finger pricks. If you test your blood sugar at least four times per day and inject insulin at least three times per day or use an insulin pump and have private insurance or Medicare, you might be eligible for a CGM with little or no cost to you. Call U.S. Medical Supply today for a free benefits check. We offer free shipping, 90-day supplies, and we bill Medicare or your insurance directly. Call now and say goodbye to finger pricks. 800-493-6112. 800-493-6112. 800-493-6112. 
That's 800-493-6112. Today we decided to walk to school. At the corner, we waited to cross the street. The stoplight counted down. 15, 14. 31? I mean, 13? We took a left on Carroll Garden Street. Loud music was coming from a car. Danny's a smart kid, but he gets so distracted. There were so many other sounds. I didn't know what to focus on. Danny, earth to Danny. Suddenly, he realized he forgot his homework again. I left my homework on the table. At the school steps, we hug goodbye. I really hope he doesn't have another bad day at school today. When you can see learning and attention issues from their side, you can be on their side. That's why there's understood.org, a free online resource for the parents of the one in five kids with learning and attention issues. Get personalized recommendations, practical tips, daily access to experts, and more. Go from misunderstanding to understood.org. Brought to you by Understood and the Ad Council. Boys are weird. You're a whiner. This is Radio Law Talk. So going into the break, we were talking about the seizure by uh, law enforcement officer officials, FBI, DEA, and the U.S. Postal Service um, investigators, where they went into U.S. private vaults, that's the name of the company in Beverly Hills, and, and seized and they had a warrant, and they went in and they seized the contents of safe deposit boxes inside this private company, private vaults. And so that, that raises a couple of issues because the, the benefit to the consumer at private vaults is that they can use these private vaults to store whatever item they want, and they do it anonymously so it's not traced back to you. So now the lawsuit is being brought by five individuals against these governmental agencies saying, look, you violated my Fourth Amendment rights in seizing this stuff. Now, law enforcement can come back and they're going to say, hey, we had a warrant. OK, except that a warrant isn't always just facially you're, you're the law enforcement equivalent of get out of jail free. I can seize whatever I want. At some point, a person who's had who's had items seized can challenge the information in the warrant to see if it's factually accurate and right. if that assertion rises to the level of probable cause. We, we heard a lot about this over the last three years with FISA courts, and I don't want to get into that except that I will say this one thing, and this is where it's, the warrant process is the same. When any law enforcement officer, whether it's FISA or whether it's these folks here, um, the FBA, DEA, FBI, DEA, and U.S. Postal Service, when they go to a judge to get the warrant signed – there is nobody representing the person being investigated or potential defendant in front of that judge. It, right. is, it, is, it is direct communication between law enforcement and the judge. This is what I think. And they go for it. And there's no one there to cross-examine the officer to say, hold on here. Let's take a look at this. At some point in time, that will come up maybe in a trial if they want to challenge the warrant or as the case is pending, but not when the warrant issues. Well, the judge is supposed to ask questions, is he not? Or is, he, or is this a rubber stamp process? Well, I think that I think the well, it can be a rubber stamp process depending on what's the content. You have to remember it doesn't necessarily mean it's it's true information. Right, I get for, that. For, um, for the most part, I would you know I've seen judges 
Now, mind you, when I was with the DA's office um, here in California, we would rotate this responsibility every two weeks. So I'd, I would be on call for two weeks. And essentially, if there was any call from a law enforcement officer saying, hey, we need a warrant for this, come three o'clock in the morning, they would send me a copy of the warrant. I would look at it and make sure that the elements were met and, you know, give my opinion about whether or not this meets the uh, standard of probable cause that a warrant needs. And then once I signed off on it, the law enforcement officer would take it to the judge and the judge would read it and, and make most that of the, same decision, right? Make the same decision. So if the judge had questions, usually it was because they would look at the affidavit and maybe they'd be questioning whether or not there's enough information in the affidavit to support a probable cause determination. So they'd ask questions and and if there wasn't enough information, right. then the officers had to go back and redraft. So at the that affidavit. moment the prosecutor becomes an advocate for the potential the defendant or just nobody? No, the police. Nobody's an advocate for the uh, person that's getting seized. How's, yeah. how's that okay? Well, 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 again, again, the prosecutor's not necessarily an advocate. The prosecutor is allowing a separate set of eyes to look at this warrant to say, essentially, well, okay, you want my opinion? If you take that to the judge, the judge ain't going to sign it. There's not enough there for probable cause. Or... Yeah, you've got enough there for probable cause. It's it's just a it's like proofreading. He's a betting source, right? Exactly. Yeah, okay. In this case, it's kind of like the government just said uh, this U.S. vault company is just a criminal act activity, and you know, just kind of made this idea about it. And now U.S. Vault is saying, wait a second, we don't allow, we're, it's in our contracts, we don't allow illegal drugs, weapons, ammunition, hazardous materials, illegal yeah. contraband, illegally um, obtained uh, property, or any products therefrom. And they said, we conduct searches with trained dogs to sniff out any drugs and activities. So we are trying to enforce the legality of our business, in essence. And that information would not have been before the judge when the judge signed off on the warrant. Well, that doesn't seem fair to me. It is, it's, <laughs> it's a little difficult. Denise and I were talking about this over the break. And in my opinion, the way I read this case, because law enforcement is saying, no, you're not going to get your property back unless you come forward and identify yourself as one of these anonymous people. And I have to assume that in addition to perhaps contraband that was seized, there are probably a lot of non-contraband oriented things that were seized from individuals that aren't breaking the law or anything. But now they have to come forward and identify themselves to get their property back that the government has seized. And from my two cents, that seems backwards yeah. for this reason. We inherently, uh, the Constitution, you know, we, the, the inalienable rights among them, life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness. So that liberty thing is huge here. I have the right to liberty because I exist. Everybody right. does. And so the government should be the one having to come in to say, this is where that right needs to be curtailed so that we can get this thing of yours, so we can seize it. And to require people to come in and identify themselves to get a return of their property when that property <laughs> – is not suspected of being of having any part parcel Nothing no instrumentality it. Un of that untainted, yeah. untainted mm -hmm. law enforcement should just have to put that back in the safety deposit box and let them come and get it and not have to disclose their identity. Well, my thinking is now if they confiscate stuff from homeless people that are camping illegally, that take the confiscated, confiscated stuff, pardon me, in a couple of smaller communities, take it to the police storage yard, mark it to whom it belongs so they can come and reclaim it and give it back. Or in this case, 
the storage company, they could have given it to the storage company. Here, this is from locker 14B. Give it back to the correct owner, please. This is 14C. I mean, they could have done something like that if they wanted to take the trouble. If law enforcement cannot identify the contents of a specific safety deposit box as being an instrumentality of a crime, it should absolutely be put back. Yeah. Yes. Absolutely it should be put and back. And you should not have to provide your identity to get your property back. Yeah, that's what because, I'm saying. Just give it yeah. to the storage company and say, go put it back. And, yeah. and, 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 and so the, it's not just a Fourth Amendment issue. It's also a Fifth Amendment issue, the right not to incriminate yourself. Right. Well, right? Actually, 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 the right to remain silent. Yes. And, 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 and I, want to, I want to draw a distinction between remaining silent and saying something that incriminates you. Because there may be things – look, there may be a reason why somebody wanted an anonymous – uh, safety deposit box, safe deposit box that had nothing to do with an illegality. But if the contents, even though not illegal, were ever made public, were ever known, it might cause embarrassment. You're right. I mean, uh, you know, let's the most innocuous thing. Some guy loves this girl, buys a huge engagement ring, pops it in the uh, safe deposit box for safekeeping until he's ready to propose to the girl. Now he's got to go and identify himself, and the cat's out of the bag because it was made news that he got – that's a hypothetical example, but still, sure. you're requiring people to give up their rights in order to get your property back when the government didn't necessarily have a justification for seizing that property. And how does that differ from a bank vault? If they get away with this, they could go to doesn't. your bank and go through a safety deposit box if they wanted to. The difference is an, an Anonymity. Anonymity, yes. Thank you. (laughs) Because um, that's the biggest difference because at the bank vault, if they get a warrant, they're going to have your name on it, right? So you can go to the bank and the bank's going to identify your box. So that's the difference. This implies, you know, your, it also implies a right to privacy um, because they want, they're expecting that this is going to be private contents that are not going to be disclosed and they don't want to be associated with those contents. That was a pretty wide net, wasn't it? I, it? It was. I would be really curious. Now, the warrant is under seal, but I would really be curious to read that affidavit to see how law enforcement justified getting a warrant, how they went to a judge and say, look, judge, we don't know who any of this stuff belongs to, but we know there's illegal stuff in there. I totally agree. How, I do, they, how. how do they do that? Hmm. And that you know, that is the fight that um, these plaintiffs have in front of them to get those documents to prove, no, no, there was no probable causes to me. And I shouldn't have to identify self, myself to get my property back that was not lawfully seized. That's an interesting question. But now it's time for us to get to the end of the show and start wrapping up with your quick takes. Mr. Cuna, do you have a quick take? You'd I like do. To Based on his arguments in court. I'm waiting for Robert De Niro to change his name to Robert No De Niro. <laughs> Way to put the international flavor into the show there, Todd. And Denise, you have one? Well, remember when we were uh, talking about Epstein a while back and we had the Mile High Club uh, subpoena? Yeah. And they were trying to get all the people that were in that Mile High Club flying with him? Well, now they've changed it to the Vile High Club. <laughs> Vile High Club. Yikes. <laughs> Folks, thank you for tuning in this week to Radio Law Talk. If you didn't catch all the show, you can catch us on our podcast. It should be up in a couple of days. Fred, looking forward to you coming back. And that's all, folks. You have been listening to RadioLawTalk.com. 
a copyrighted presentation of Radio Law Talk Incorporated. Some people say the USA is finished. It's evil, a has-been, full of hate and injustice. The U.S. Constitution should be trashed and the Bill of Rights abolished. No free speech, no gun ownership. Competition and free markets are bad. We're all too stupid. For our own good, the government must own everything and know all your secrets. Other people say that America has created the freest, richest, happiest, most generous society that has ever existed in the world. That's why millions of people are desperate to come here and escape their brutal lives in Cuba, Venezuela, North Korea, and 100 other countries. In America, we have the right to succeed, the right to our own living, the right to have a family, the right to believe in God, the right to have our own ideas, the right to be safe and secure, and the right to be left alone. Where do you stand? Help us save the Constitution and restore the American dream. Go to SaveMyFreedom.com. Brought to you by the American Media Council.